0: Oh hey friend, welcome to another episode of the Crash Course Fashion Podcast. My name is Brittany Sierra and I'm your host. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes to explore the multifaceted and often complicated reality of building and scaling a purpose-driven brand. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Elizabeth Klein and Marzia LaFranchi. Last week, we talked about misinformation, where it comes from, and why it's important. In this week's episode, we're talking about how to avoid misinformation as an industry leader. Specifically, we're talking about how the fashion industry can increase its data literacy to make informed decisions on sustainability, and how to create honest marketing claims and avoid unintentional greenwashing. So, let's just dive right in. Here's part two of my conversation with Elizabeth and Marzia. I've been thinking a lot about greenwashing and how it stems from misinformation. Earlier in the conversation, you were saying that greenwashing is a culprit of misinformation. Essentially, when brands create marketing campaigns around you know, information that's not necessarily true or that's not telling the whole story. People get so annoyed and so frustrated with greenwashing, rightfully so, because there are brands who are very, very much intentional with their greenwashing and intentionally are not telling the whole story and intentionally are leaving things out so that they appear to be more sustainable, more green, more sustainably focused, whatever. But there are those who aren't doing that, and they truly are just creating campaigns, marketing, whatever, around the facts that's out there. And considering the fact that, as we just discussed, there are credible organizations and institutions that are using questionable data and spreading and sharing incorrect facts, can we really hold brands accountable for greenwashing? When there is so much bad information out there?
1: So I, I see like there's this different type of brands that can, uh, can be called out for greenwashing. Some of them are small, some of them are medium-sized, some of them are large. And I think in the small to medium-sized brands, there's like a lower capacity to address these issues still like there is a responsibility for, but for big brands with big marketing teams and with big budgets there's no justification of not really doing their due diligence of what they put out there and making sure that it's backed up with uh, fact-based and science-based information.
2: I, I feel like We, in this report, tried to move away from the blame game because what we're saying is that misinformation is systemic, it's society-wide, it's being driven by this massive historic transformation towards the digitalization of information and social media controls how we receive information in combination with the um, complete destruction of the model of legacy journalism so journalism real journalism is struggling too um these are just big big massive issues that are infecting every every part of society and i've learned a lot from since the report has come out talking to journalists and hearing from them about the pressures they're under to produce content to write a story every single day no they're not offered fact checking, uh, resources. Like one thing that our fact checker pointed out to me, um, and I'm embarrassed to, to admit this, but you cannot fact check in a real sense of the word, your own work. The whole point of fact checking is to have an external independent person, fresh set of eyes, like looking over your work and, you know, verifying it. So, like, I've had assignments before where, people, you know, I always, quote, unquote, fact check my own work. But what she was telling us is, like, real fact checking is another person who is, like, outside of the work, who brings, like, fresh eyes and fresh perspective to it. So, I just bring this up to say, like, uh, yes, I know that a lot of brands are cashing in on our interest in sustainability. Um, A lot of it is very intentional and egregious um but the misinformation issue is like much much bigger than like just brands um in in green green marketing
1: i i agree on the blame uh, uh game everybody like you said elizabeth before that when the report came out is like okay so who's who's to blame for misinformation and they always want fault to is find it? yeah yeah <laughs> always like well, there always needs to be one but what i what i love uh, written Brittany about your um podcast was that um i think it was julia gull from mary claire that was talking about press releases and how like journalists get press releases and then they just copy paste put it out sometimes without mm-hmm. even like asking the brands are you are you really saving water for these pair of jeans what are you doing like it, what and and she was like saying and she she said what happened to questioning uh and challenging these press releases and and this is where media has a huge role to play uh because uh you know if uh, if a If a brand can get away with just like sending you a press release and then you're going to put it out as is, then it's uh, it's we're not really making anybody accountable for what they put out there. So I think uh, I like the idea of um, also media playing a role in challenging press releases, presentations or digging deeper into into the stories.
2: Yeah, I'll give you an example from, I just saw the other day, like, Donnie, um, they launched this new shoe collection, and, and they were like, whatever, leather, leather, one day we'll think of leather like smoking, because um, it's just so bad for the climate, um, because leather um, is, in a, in a life cycle assessment, it has to accept the entire carbon footprint of bee production, um, which I have an issue with. Um, but really the problem with this, that story, as I saw it reported, was that they did not offer the carbon footprint for the material that they had switched to. So you're just supposed to have faith that this you know, other material that they're using has a lower carbon footprint. It's built on the assumption that leather is unsustainable, inherently, innately unsustainable, unredeemably unsustainable, which is, are very similar to the narratives that we hear about the cotton industry as well. Mm-hmm.
0: What advice would you give to journalists who are covering sustainability and the sustainability focused claims from brands that, that don't wanna fall into the misinformation trap? Something that I learned from that conversation that I have with Julia which I think is the first episode um, of this podcast. But something that I learned from that conversation, which I was completely floored by, is the fact that a lot of people are covering fashion that don't actually know how the fashion supply chain works. So they don't know necessarily how a garment goes from cotton in a field to now a garment on a runway. So the reason why they're not asking more questions or digging deeper when they're getting these press releases is because they don't know what questions to ask, that they don't know that there's more there that they should be asking or that they should be pushing back on or that they should be getting clarification on or even like that article that you were talking about, Elizabeth, where it's like, okay, well, what is the percentage of this new material that you're using that you're saying is better than leather? Like They don't necessarily even know to ask that question um and then also when you're thinking about like how quickly they're they're turning over new content you know new articles every single day multiple articles every single day your brain can only like process so much right and so at some point you just get to a point where it's like i just have to get this article out you know copy paste copy paste copy paste and then i was just thinking you know let's say a journalist was trying to to track a fact back to its original source and you know went all the way down that rabbit hole oftentimes the original information is behind a paywall. And I mean, I'm not familiar with the state of magazines and publications, but I can't imagine that there is much of a budget for purchasing, you know, these types of studies. So considering the state of journalism and, you know, and sustainability and grain washing and misinformation and, and all of the things, what advice would you give to journalists covering sustainability?
2: Well, that's one of the reasons why we did the report like it is just about cotton but at least um one of the things we're going to do next is um try to get consensus from a bunch of different stakeholders in the cotton industry around the report so everyone feels like they can trust like if you were writing anything about cotton you can go to this report and pull information from it easily and not have to have that sort of paranoia like oh am i citing the wrong thing um because I, I, we understand that that is the issue, right? And now people are like aware of misinformation, but then they don't know how to replace it with credible information. So it's a yeah. big, big, big part of why we did this report the way that we did. And then we um, hope that people take the same approach and, and use it to write about other other materials, other parts of the supply chain. And then in terms of data behind paywalls, it's a huge issue. And it's one of our calls to action in the paper. We want the industry to come together to buy this data and put it in the public domain. It's, it's a huge problem. Um, uh, but luckily it's something that I think can be overcome. And then in terms of like journalists writing from press releases, like it just makes a more interesting story to go back to a brand if they're making a claim like, "I made a sustainable bra out of sugarcane." Like, okay, what makes it what makes it sustainable? Did you do a life cycle assessment? What kind of environmental study did you do to determine that this sugarcane bra is more more sustainable or has less of an environmental impact than? Um, regular traditionally produced bra I use that example because Walmart put one out recently and I was like nope you need I need (laughs) some some data where is your data that this is somehow more green than a regular bra
1: but I would also say like maybe it's also something simple if you don't have the technical expertise just find an expert that does I mean is it that hard to find an expert that can support you in this reporting. And what I would say additionally is that some scientists and authors of uh, scientific papers, uh, they may have their um, scientific article behind a paywall, behind a um, journal. But if you contact them directly on uh, ResearchGate or a like they're so collaborative they want everybody to read their research they just have a journal they publish it so they can pub they can give you access to maybe partial um like stories that they you can um sorry um like a, a part of their report so i think also like cont, if you're really interested in in this data behind a the paywall then 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 contact this source and maybe they'll share it not all of them are super collaborative but some are so yeah
0: yeah one of the big calls to action from this paper that you have for brands and for the fashion industry as a whole is to work on um, increasing their data literacy or our data literacy so how do we get to the truth and find accurate data and how do we filter out the misleading versus the credible claims?
2: Well, we do we have a, um, a fact checking exercise in the paper. Um, we have people go through a um, if I remember correctly, it's a, it was a piece of branded content that was on the box website that uses the 20,000 liters water claim. So we were like, okay, your reader, you come across this claim on the internet. Like how would you ever verify if it's true? Um, And in the exercise, um, it's very simple. We say, try to find the primary source. Um, And a primary source is, you know, like uh, with data that would be the original study, ideally scientific and peer reviewed that produced this data. Um, And with the Vox story, um, I think we had to go back through 14 different uh, sources. Um, and so it was pretty much just people like, you know, linking back to another article and then another website and then a blog. Um, and then we finally got to what claimed to be the primary source. And we were really excited because like we were saying earlier in the episode, we, the, we couldn't find the primary source for the statistic. Like we couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So we were like, oh my God, like maybe we finally found it. Um, but we looked in the report and that was being claimed as the primary source and it, the data was not in there. So um, that means you shouldn't use that claim. Like it should not have been in the box story. It shouldn't have been in any of the other blogs or newspaper stories that um, that uh, were linking to it. Um, it's not always that difficult though. You know what I mean? Like some of the, the data that is in circulation, um, it's easier to find the primary source because it's like newer. Um, ideally, it's like from a newer study.
1: Yes, I would say you, you look at a claim, you see it on the internet, uh, and first of all, check if it has um, a reference to a footnote if or if it has a linked um website or report so it's often underlined go go through that and check what does the original link that they share or the footnote says and does it actually is it actually the primary source if it's not if it's citing another report like go to that one and see what it actually says and oftentimes you find broken links or you find that it, the information is hidden. Like it's, it, it was processed in a way that it's not recognizable from the from the website that you pulled from or the claim that you pulled from. So I would say you can you can Google it after you can you can try to find the primary source for that. And uh, if uh, you're not successful with that, then I wouldn't use this uh, this claim.
2: Yeah, I can try to give an example from the the Stand.Earth report that came out this week on fashion brands' climate commitments. So that report had a lot of its own um, original findings. But then throughout the report, they were also referencing other reports um, and other people's findings, like, for example, the um, percentage of textiles that are made out of polyester and fossil fuels, and they had a footnote and a link. So I was actually looking through that report, finding things to share on social media, and I stopped and was like, I'm going to go look back at the original report and make sure they're not transposing, um, introducing inaccuracies, and just go back to the primary source and lift from the original, just to make sure I'm not making any mistakes. That's like a very simple thing that um, literally every, anyone can do and it actually doesn't take that much time.
1: And also what I would say, if you're really keen to use that data point and it's the key, the core of your story, Um, check what data, what date, what year was it published? Is it actually the most up-to-date that you can access or can you access the most up-to-date figure or claim? Um, So that's also a suggestion that I would make, making sure that you're not publishing something that is 20 years old, because it's most likely not to be any longer relevant. You
0: know, in having this conversation, I'm wondering if maybe we should focus less on specific numbers and maybe we should think more of context and and use what those numbers are representing instead of using actual numbers. Because the reason why I'm saying that is because sometimes I think that numbers can still be confusing even when you go back and you look at a primary source one place will say one number and another place will say another number. Like I'm I'm thinking about different, um, different reports, right? Like one report will say X, the other report will say Y. And they're supposedly measuring the same thing. They're supposedly representing the same thing, but those numbers are different. So then if you are trying to create a marketing campaign or trying to decide what you're gonna do as far as your sustainability initiatives or trying to write a report or trying to write an article, which number do you use, you know?
2: And we could probably talk for another hour about this, but we won't, we won't. (laughs) That people are overly trusting of data because they think that data can't lie. And that if you have a data point, it gives you authority, right? Like I am telling the truth because I have a number to back up what I'm saying. As we discussed in this conversation, like, Numbers are actually incredibly easy to transpose, um, to misuse, to misinterpret, to misunderstand. Um, they can be just as misleading, if not more, as text. So we're, we're kind of asking people to bring a healthy skepticism to numbers. Um, and if your takeaway is maybe I'll use... Fewer numbers and more context and more text. I I I think that that's a a reasonable takeaway. But what we've found, some pushback we've gotten, um, or maybe it's an insight that I've gleaned from since we put out the report is that there's people are just obsessed with data. They want like a data point that just sums it up, sums everything up, um, and and maybe that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about when we were saying that sometimes needing it to be a black or white yes or no answer can get you into some trouble, especially when it comes to misinformation, because you can use the same fact, the same statistic, the same numbers to prove something to be right, quote unquote, and to prove something to be wrong, quote unquote. So it's really more so about context than it is about the actual number.
1: I, I love what you said about like, I'm not sure whether to trust these numbers. So if your sense is that you're not sure that this is a reliable source or something that you feel confident to share, don't share it. Share like like these more like um, contextualized arguments. But then what I would say also, normally when you look for really local data, is you, what you find is most likely to be relevant, useful, meaningful. Um, I remember the um, some some um, reporting that the OR Foundation has done of, over uh, in Ghana on uh, on <clears throat> on, uh, on the secondhand clothing. I think you know, like it's a very like specific locality. It has. And, and it has a kind of um, you know, insight into that specific region. And I think it's, um, it's local data often is more reliable over generalized statistics or um, what, we, what we talk about in the report, global averages. And it's also more meaningful. If you're tackling a problem in a specific geography, that's what you can use to open a conversation on this issue. And the O.R. Foundation's data is a good example of how
2: quickly um, data can be misused, because I've seen people say things like, you know, all, all secondhand clothing goes overseas and is thrown into a landfill, like immediately. And it's like, well, no, their data is about one country out of hundreds that receive secondhand clothes. Um, So, you know, people have to just, you have to constantly be vigilant because it's really, really easy to spread misinformation um, on the internet. And I, I like totally agree with Marzia too about this problem of global averages and us being drawn to these big shocking statistics that attempt to sum up our world and our industry. Because if you really think about most of the claims shared about the fashion industry they're all like that that's what they all have in common like fashion is the second most polluting you know cotton is water thirsty cotton uses more pesticides than any other industry um they're um they're they're generalized and like simplified like much too far too far
1: you know written in the start of this conversation offline we generalize that influencers are bad, you know? And like we are generalizing that all cotton farmers are bad because they use 20,000 liters of water per kg of cotton. I mean, really? Like these are livelihoods that we are talking about and how can we put them all in a box and then uh, how can, like, who has the, the, the power to oversimplify these narratives? Uh, also, like, it's, it's not often the one that is affected by these narratives. It's the one that is uh, looking to shape a different um, um, way of doing things. And maybe with good intent, maybe with bad intent, but I mean, they need to respect what are they're the people that they're talking about and the livelihoods that are putting at stake.
0: I remember Nishant from Oshadi Collective he said something during a sff event that has stuck with me ever since essentially what he was saying is that across the supply chain everyone has goals and dreams for the type of life that they want to live so within the ceos and and the people that are making the decisions right they all have goals and and things that they want to accomplish as far as life you know, where they want to send their kids to school, where they want to go on vacation, where they want to live, what type of food they want to eat, what they want to do for entertainment. Like they all have in mind this lifestyle that they want and the people making our clothing and these cotton farmers, they also have goals and dreams for their life and where they want to send their kids and where they want to live and what what type of lifestyle that they want to have. But so often in the fashion industry and across industries in general, it's the the goals of the CEOs and the people who are leading these companies and leading the industry, they they actually achieve their goals and their dreams. And it's 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 just a commonplace that they're going to have the lifestyle that they want. But when it comes to the people who are making our clothing, cotton farmers, et cetera, not only is it widely known that they may not achieve the goals that they have for their life but it's accepted like it's it's like a normal thing for them not to have the ability to live the type of lifestyle that they would want and how messed up is that you know what I mean and it's like all of the the decisions that are being made by the industry like you said are not necessarily being made by people who it's going to affect. You know what I mean? Like we're making decisions based on stuff that we've just decided is best. And for whatever reason, we've decided that this is the way that it needs to be. Not taking into consideration who it's going to affect, how it's going to affect them, and what their input could be. Because they're right there. Like they know. They're the ones dealing with fill-in-the-blank thing. It would be wise to take into their into account their perspective and their thoughts, because it's affecting them. But also, they know whatever it is best better than we do. You know what I mean? But so often, you know, the decisions are made without them. And I think that I think that for me, after having this conversation, I think that that's really where misinformation hits home for me. You know, before it was just, well, why would we want to spread information that's not true? Like, why would we want to do that? Doesn't that discredit us? But I think in thinking about it, you know, like more in depth and really understanding the role that misinformation plays, I think for me, it's that right there where it's like we're we're spreading things, we're saying things that we think doesn't necessarily have a consequence, but it's affecting someone and it's affecting their livelihood and their ability to provide for their family, potentially,
1: but that's also like I think a really important consideration that we need to take into account when we use these global generic statement better mm. good and uh, global averages, et cetera
0: mm, for sure, do you think that legislation is going to be the solution that everyone is sort of hoping that it will be in terms of greenwashing and misinformation and even like the oversimplification of information and and whatnot like do you think that it's going to be that solution that just changes everything
2: as the green guides get updated um you know that will be a process negotiated between the industry and citizens so we don't know what the outcome could be you know we 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 can imagine that for those of us who are very concerned with greenwashing and pretty much don't want brands to be able to make i personally don't think that brands should be able to call any kind of product green because you have to look at their entire business model their you know their full like carbon footprint like their water stewardship approach like how what they're paying their supply chain workers like it's just i think the idea of a green product is mis- inherently misleading is that gonna be what comes out in the updated green guides? Probably not, you know, like that's the thing, one of the things about policy where it can be limited is like, it's supposed to be a more democratic process, which means it's not just super progressive environmental activists who are gonna be shaping this. Like there are gonna be a lot of different people at the table negotiating what this is gonna look like. I'm hopeful that it's going to be pretty stringent because the United States is so behind compared to. Um, I think Marzia, you you know more about the UK's update on greenwashing. Like, we're really behind in this space, so it's needed. Um, but I absolutely agree. It's not. It's not going to be a cure all. Like, it's not going to be like that. Green guides are updated, and now green greenwashing
1: is over. Yeah. Normally, I- oh. sorry, Brittany, you go.
0: Oh, I was just agreeing and um, basically just saying that, yeah, I, I don't think that legislation alone is going to be the thing that is going to solve all of our problems and be the miracle. In the episode before this one, I was chatting with Gordon Renew from Good On You, and I asked him the same question of if he thought that legislation is going to be the thing, like the miracle that's going to rid the world from greenwashing and make brands transparent and blah, blah, blah. And He pointed out the importance of the citizen in all of this and and why the citizen is is so important to the conversation and basically, you know, said what you're saying, Elizabeth, where it's like it's not just sustainable fashion advocates and enthusiasts that are going to be at the table when these decisions are being made. They also are going to have other entities, other people that are at the table that have different agendas than we do. I mean, I'll say
2: what I learned from organizing with SB 62 is a lot of this will come down to how the community gets involved in the process. Like, you know, um, it's not predetermined how this is gonna go. So if we want it to be really stringent, we're Mm -hmm. gonna have to like organize to make that happen.
1: In the EU and in the UK, there was an open consultation process. And I think the, the, the new guidance come from that open consultation. And I think, yeah, definitely we all need to organize and, and make sure that we submit for the open consultation process. I don't know how the US works, but the, in in the EU, we've done two, um, two policy submissions for the due diligence legislation that is coming up. So I think we need to really participate and represent a wider um, wider spectrum of voices that doesn't only come from policymakers that have to, yeah, are not familiar with this industry. I think we also have to keep our eye
2: on the prize. Like even if greenwashing goes away and it really needs to, because it's such a time suck, we spend waste time trying to figure out if brands are lying to us or not. But that won't change the fact or change the reality of whether or not the fashion industry is sustainable if it's like working to reduce the environmental impact it'll be much easier to tell to be able to know um but it's not you know it's not going to like change those underlying systemic reasons that the industry is like growing so quickly using unsustainable resources like coal Mm -hmm. you know coal-powered uh garment factories and textile factories and uh heavily reliant on fossil fuels. All of those issues are not going to be addressed by changing our advertising laws.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Like a really, really, really good point. And I also wonder I think that, you know, like even if we have legislation, right, and we have things in place that are supposed to keep brands from being able to say and do pretty much whatever it is that they want to do, right? um there needs to be some sort of enforcement you know and and consequences i mean right now there are things in place that are supposed to keep brands from being able to greenwash and do some of the things that they're doing and yet they're still getting away with it and marzia i was thinking about the webinar that transformers foundation held that was talking about greenwashing and legislation in the webinar um adidas was brought up and one of the campaigns that they had that was found to be greenwashing like it was okay official this is greenwashing and the only consequences were that they were asked to stop like asked like hey can you stop promoting this like asked to stop promoting the ad um and i think it was put up on a website that hey guess what adidas as was found guilty of greenwashing but other than that I mean like if you don't know to look at that website you're not gonna know there was no I mean like there th- that's not a consequence you know what I mean like there's like okay so you say that we're greenwashing well I say we're not okay now what moving on to the next ad you know what I mean like so I think that that's a, an important piece
1: There's trends in this sustainability space. So another trend is legislation. So everybody thinks it's going to be the one solution that will save us from greenwashing and anything else that comes with um, sustainability issues in this this industry. But it's not the only way. It's one of the ways. And then the other way is, uh, like we discussed in that webinar that you mentioned, responsible citizenship. Okay, that one citizen filed this um, issue about Adidas greenwashing to the, uh, to the jury in France. Have, it's, a, it's a reputational risk that they have in terms of like Adidas and maybe doesn't have a huge repercussion now, but maybe in the future with more solid legislation it will. So I think it's, we don't realize that it's like one step at a time and every function of this society at the same, like pushing to advance this it's not only legislation it's citizens it's like society at large is um is uh, is you media um yeah mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. well let's use adidas as an example because this is a question that i get asked often and i think a lot of brands are like they struggle with and that is how much information to share in order to be transparent, in order to not be called out for greenwashing, but then understanding that the average consumer, the average citizen isn't necessarily going to know and understand all the things, right? They're, they're not going to get it. So like thinking about this Adidas ad, for example... I think that if I can remember correctly, I believe that it was found that they were guilty of grain washing because in the ad it said like 50% recycled uh, plastic, right? But it wasn't clear if it was 50% of the upper that was recycled plastic, if it was 50% of the plastic of the whole shoe that was considered to be or that was recycled. Like it, it wasn't clear. Um, From that standpoint, and then it was also there was something that had to do with the logo. I think it was like In great in in, I'll let you explain because I don't remember exactly what it was but essentially like it for all these different reasons it was found out to be greenwashing and I remember when I was listening to that webinar I was thinking like okay a few things here number one My background is in marketing. So I'm always thinking about the aesthetic and I can imagine from a brand's perspective when you create a beautiful ad, not wanting to put a paragraph like of text explaining something on that ad, right? So my question is this. If they have the information about what percentage of the shoe is made of that 50% recycled plastic on their website, but they don't have it on the actual ad, is that considered to be greenwashing? Because in theory, a customer can look at that ad and not know or not go to the website to see more, to learn more or whatever. So they would only see that ad and then they could be misled even though the information is on the website. So that was like my first thought question that I was thinking when I saw that. The other thing that I was thinking about is the fact that, um, you know, they were found guilty because it was unclear whether like what part of the shoe was made of the 50% recycled plastic. I remember thinking, do customers even know what an upper is or like the construction of a shoe to know which part of the shoe they were talking about when they were saying 50% recycled plastic? Like, do they even know? And then at that point, it's like, how much information do you share? Again, to be transparent and to not be accused of greenwashing, but then at the same time, understanding that they may not know all of the things they may not understand all of the things and sometimes by giving too much information that also could be seen as a sign of greenwashing because you're just throwing a bunch of information at the wall knowing that they're not going to understand but they're going to assume because you're being transparent that you must be sustainable
1: yeah i mean it happens in the b2b space where there's uh, like big brands putting reports sustainability reports are too long for anybody to go through. And so you feel like, oh, is it actually, are they actually doing all this stuff? Or are they just uh, um, taking me by, uh, you know, like by, um, uh, they tarring me with their report and I won't, won't go through it. I don't know, it's a mix of both. But I think, um, it, it, Gordon, in your, in your um, podcast again, he talks about the consumer's rights and I think it's the consumer rights to know what's in their product. And the, the problem with this advert wasn't the, that it's 50% recycle apper or something like that. It said he had conflicting um, messages. He said that he had 50%, um, 100% iconic, 50% recycled. And then um, and, um, in an appendix, it put that it comes to like, it's um, well, uh, at least 50% recycled uh, in the upper, but every plastic you utilize for these like um, f- on, on the foot is recycled. And so it, it was really confusing. And so that's why they came, came to this conclusion. And on top of it, there was a logo that said, end plastic waste. We all know that this is recycled maybe in some parts but it won't be recyclable probably because of the system that we rely on uh, at this time. And so like, this is highly misleading and the consumer has the right to know that we haven't fixed the system and and, and we haven't fixed the fashion system. And maybe some people, some consumers won't understand it, but some will. But it's like saying, I don't need a privacy statement uh, like that I agree or disagree with because I don't understand it and you know like you have the right to know what's in your product and you have to the right not to be misled I think um so even if um if we continue to dumb down the consumer and think that they're they won't understand then they will they will understand less and less
0: Mm, yeah
1: and and so I think um yeah I don't I I don't think that argument stands but yeah, I don't know what you think, of Brittany. Actually, I would be interested to hear your opinion on that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think Gordon, I think Gordon, um, I liked what he said about the different layers, you know what I mean? And I, I also agree with what you're saying about like, if we keep saying, oh, the consumer isn't going to understand, the consumer doesn't care, the consumer doesn't know. Well, then they will continue to not understand and they will continue to not know, which maybe is to the benefit of some companies and brands that are, you know, greenwashing. But I think that designers and marketers are very creative, right? Like we're very creative people and we're able to convey messages in a way that gets people's attention and shares whatever it is that we're that we're trying to say. And I think that there are creative ways that are aesthetically pleasing that information can be shared you know even if it isn't an ad it can be something as simple as one sentence one short sentence that says you know see the website for more information i mean it can be done you know and the idea of like oh well you know if we if we tell them all of these different things they're not going to necessarily understand well first of all like you don't know if they're not going to get it or understand And if they don't, that's your opportunity to teach them and to share and to, you know, and to educate them on that and to show that you are a leader in this space by educating them on something that they may not necessarily understand or know, you know. And I think, yeah, I I think it's like, well, how much information should we share? Well, you should share all the information that is necessary for them to fully understand the context of what it is that you are trying to tell them and sell them and make that accessible. Like, I mean, it's a choice to to make these like long, you know, sustainability reports that nobody can understand and like graphs and things that like what is actually going on here. Like that's a choice. I mean, just like with your report, the cotton, um, a case study of misinformation. I mean, you chose to make that incredibly accessible through the language that you used, through the um, like the different callouts that you used, through the different graphics and, and things like that. Like you chose to make that information accessible when you could have easily made that extremely difficult to understand and to like know what was going on. So I think that the same thing goes with, you know, brands and, and sharing this information. It's like, OK, well, yeah, maybe they wouldn't know what an upper is, but this is your opportunity to tell them what an upper is and to help them to understand so that when you say that your shoe is made out of 50 percent recycled plastic they know what that means but i guess that leads me to my my final question which is what do we do now like where do we go from here we know that we have a misinformation problem what what should industry folks do with all of the information that they have learned throughout this conversation
1: I think we need to work on our data literacy issue, uh, which is, uh, yeah, it's massive in this industry. And uh, we, we, um, are, some of our contributors say that fashion heavily relies on creatives. And now that we realize that it's a supply chain that also needs um, technical understanding, we need to expand not only our marketing teams, our design teams, uh, our uh, sales team, but also our sustainability and technical teams. And, uh, and not like think that one sustainability person out of like, usually there's a, there's a ratio of one sustainability, but I'm, I'm just speculating here, but I've seen it uh, in uh, in the brands that I work for. It's like one sustainability person and a hundred marketing people. I mean, sustainability very complex. How can you <laughs> tackle all these subjects with one person? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm hoping, um, and and I see a lot of brands doing it. And so I think um, I'm I'm quite hopeful that we are seeing this issue and and um, yeah, build capacity in our team. Uh, we really felt strongly that that
2: this issue is so important that we have to create a safe space for calling out misinformation where it doesn't feel like a personal attack, like recognizing that this is a society wide problem and that it's very easy to come across misinformation and share it. Um, Because we've seen approaches that are the total opposite where it's like, you shared this fact and it's wrong. Like, how dare you? And it makes people really, really defensive. Um, so if we approach it more as like a collective community obligation to use the best data, then that could mean, you know, like if if I share something and someone comes to me and is like, actually, I think that that claim was discredited. Like there are people debating the veracity of that claim, Here's more information, And we can all be open to that process. Um, I, I think that that would be, really really huge
1: yeah you'd be really happy to hear that uh, today a brand called me and said you know we're going through all our policies sustainability policies and we're making sure that every stat that we we have Mm -hmm. it's uh, coming from a primary source and uh, we know it's like a long work uh, that we might have to <laughs> mm-hmm. have to do, but it, it's what we're doing, and it's one of the leading brands uh, um, in sportswear. And I'm, I'm like, wow, this is like the best outcome we could ever get. Um, one, of the be- one of the really good outcomes. And there's others. There's a brand that is fairly small, but it has quite a big voice in the sustainability space, who just released an internal report, uh, an anti-greenwashing, um, not a report, sorry, policy for their team, their marketing team to use internally. And that's, I mean, these, even just these two um, outcomes from this report, there's a really, I think, um, a really, really a good starting point. Yeah, that's really cool. Cause that is one of the, I think, the biggest negative
2: impacts we're seeing from misinformation in fashion is it's fueling greenwashing. Like it's really just the root cause, like brands are, are working with bad, information and i think sometimes it's not even intentional like they really they really think that the claims that they're using are accurate
0: yeah for sure so you've tackled cotton and misinformation do you have any plans to um tackle anything else like maybe polyester <laughs> or maybe leather <laughs> i know that you have said many times in this conversation that you hope that other people take your findings and the way that you approached this report, and and use it to tackle other areas of the sustainable fashion conversation. But just curious about if you plan to do any other reports in the future, or if you're like, look, we've done our job, we we contributed. Now it's your turn to contribute. <laughs> one thing that we've
2: committed to do to doing is um, updating the report. Um, you know, one of the issues we we Uh, sort of hit upon in the, in the, in the report is that sometimes misinformation gets circulated um, from out, very out of date reports, or there's a report, a white paper that's put out that has a mistake in it. And that mistake gets circulated over and over and over again for years. Um, So one thing we really wanted to make sure that we did was, you know, and it says in the report, like, if you have, um, if you find inaccuracies in the report, or you have better data, you want to challenge the data in this report, like reach out to us. Um, Yeah, because we want to make sure that when people go back to this report, that it's, um, it has the absolute best information possible for people to use easily. Uh, I don't know how long we're committing to doing that for, but at least you know we'll at least do it like next next year.
1: Based on what you said, Elizabeth, also like we are pointing people to the right sources or to some of the right sources, that, so that we hope that it's not the burden is not on us only, but it's it's spread and uh, and and everybody takes responsibility. And what I would say, you know, like in other subjects, we're looking to do deep dive reports. But there's also like there's not reports are not the only tool to fight misinformation or to put information out. There's also trainings that we do with brands. There's collaborations. There's like these like if it's top of mind that this is an issue, misinformation as well as greenwashing as well as um, everything that comes with it, then we can really strengthen our efforts with different type of activities. And one of which is um, with the Transformers, what I I really like is that they put a lot of efforts in education with students. And we've done uh, um, Transformers Ed, we call them, in Pakistan, Mexico um in the uk we're trying to do really diversify the 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 also the geography that we the, that we tackle so that everybody has access to more technical expertise and not only in in this specific area but on 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 um, in general technical expertise about environmental um design um social it's um but it, it's it's really addressing students to not just, uh, already out there professionals.
2: One thing I want to do, and I want to talk Marzia into doing is doing another fact checking and like, um, yeah. workshop and showing people how to find primary sources. Cause that's like one of the easiest, um, things that we could all get in the habit of doing It's like a lot of, uh, reports and articles will reference, um, a source that's not that, you know, is not the primary source. And you'd have to go back like 14 different links on the internet to ever find the primary source. And even then it might not be there. Um, So that's one thing that is actually relatively easy to show people how to do. And I think people appreciate having that knowledge. We've hit rock bottom on in the misinformation pendulum, and I do see like pe- more people kind of realizing that it got it's gotten really out of control, and we all are kind of ob- obligated to come together and um, figure out how to how to increase our data literacy, how to you know do our own uh, fact checking. Um, um, I, I also feel feel hopeful.
0: Well, two hours later, <laughs> we finally made it through all of the questions that I had for you. I was going to skip some, but I was like, no, I really want to ask every single one of these questions. So thank you so much for hanging out with me for way longer than any of us expected.
1: <laughs> good luck editing it. I know, right? Yeah. And yeah. Thank you. Well, yeah. thank you so much also. Bye, <laughs> y'all. It's so good <laughs> to bye, see you, bye.
0: Brittany. Well, we made it part two of my conversation with Elizabeth and Marzia is in the books. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and for listening to the Crash Course Fashion Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you are loving the podcast, be sure to rate, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're not following us on Instagram, you know the drill. Head over to Instagram and follow us at the Sustainable Fashion Forum for shady memes and other fun things. (laughs) Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Or I guess I'll talk to you next week. You know what I mean. (laughs) Bye.